have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Kilnarney's Public House Studios. Welcome to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute communicates cross disciplinary perspectives affecting healthcare and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of health and healthcare. I'm in the studios here with Dr. Jim Riggs and Diamond McNellis, our producer. Dr. Riggs is a professor in the Department of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences here at Ryder, and he is an expert in microbiology and immunology. And we're excited to have him here today in the studio, and we're going to talk about vaccines and the anti-vaccination movement that's out there across the nation. Welcome, Dr. Riggs. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Happy to have you. So, Dr. Riggs, can you tell us a little bit about the history of vaccines? Yes. And then we're going to lead it into how did vaccines create the anti-vaccination movement? Okay. Well, there's most people don't most people don't appreciate that vaccines actually originated as folk medicine. People were doing things called variolation, where they would take something like dental floss and they would rub it into the sickness on someone's skin to pick up the germs and then variolate or rub that into someone else and basically do a primitive form of vaccination. There are actually um, ancient Chinese silk screens that show people blowing dried pustules of material up people's nasal passages, which is actually pretty insightful when you think about modes of transmission for disease. Many diseases are transmitted in a respiratory fashion, so blowing something up someone's nose over a thousand years ago is a pretty interesting strategy for treating It is. So it's, pa- preventing it's a disease. passing on mi- what we would call nowadays microbes from one organism exactly. to another organism. Exactly. And, and what happened to those people who were treated in such They ways. essentially ended up having freedom from disease, which is what immunity essentially means. And this is way before we had any concept of what a microbe was, a virus, a bacterial organism, what have you. This is many, many, many years ago. And really, um, this practice was picked up by the uh, British ambassador's wife, uh, Lady Mary Montague. She was the British ambassador's wife in Turkey, in Constantinople. And she was watching these primitives do this variolation procedure and she thought hey that's pretty cool I'm going to bring that back to England and I'm going to variolate and vaccinate my kids and they did they vaccinated her kids they vaccinated members of the royal family they didn't vaccinate the general population but and it did work for those folks but it never was widely popularized or picked up from So in terms of the vaccines point. what were they immunizing themselves against Essentially it was smallpox it was mm-hmm. called smallpox at the time um, this is actually a viral infection that we've eliminated that's a big deal. Gone. It's gone. It's gone, gone from the planet as of 19, the mid-1970s. You and I are probably the only two people in this room or some of the few people <laughs> on campus that have actually been vaccinated yes, Diamond is a child for, 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 for smallpox. 
But um, so, yeah, they were they were going after smallpox. What people don't realize is that there was a large pox that preceded that and still is with us. It's called syphilis, mm. which causes yes. even more nasty sores or blisters. We don't have a vaccine for that or virtually any most STDs. We don't have vaccines mm. for because they're really a, a tricky. Yeah. So organisms. I remember and correct me if I'm wrong. I remember a discussion back in the 1980s about. Um, even keeping smallpox in, in laboratories frozen away. There was a big, um, like some people think they should have eliminated it even for research purposes to eradicate it from the planet, not just among people. It still exists in freezers at yep. the CDC and in Moscow, so scientists can pull it out and study it. Climate change is probably going to liberate some carcasses that are frozen in the tundra permafrost that will have smallpox virus that could be infectious in it. So Concerns about smallpox may return. We have generations without durable protective immunity because they were never vaccinated. Now, am I correct in thinking, too, that smallpox was actually used um, in, the, in the late 1700s in warfare? It could have been, yes. Yeah. It was actually used. Uh, Lord Jeffrey of Amherst in Amherst, Massachusetts actually loaded up some blankets with mucus laden with smallpox and said to the local Indians here, this will keep you warm. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that was like an early form early of form biological of warfare. Exactly right. A absolutely. So here's a, sort of a nasty, so one of the first, a nasty human disease that's very contagious that we've essentially, through vaccination, eliminated from the human population across the globe. That is correct. Cool. As, are, are there any others? you know, uh, such examples that you can think of. Polio virus, we were on the doorstep. It's actually been eradicated from the Western Hemisphere since 1991. Um, basically, a lot of our muddling or meddling in the Middle East has reduced vaccine compliance in areas where the Taliban goes through and mm -hmm. has been uh, eliminating or killing people to come in to do vaccination procedures. The polio virus vaccination requires multiple vaccinations. And when we got Osama bin Laden, we actually got Osama bin Laden based on some DNA testing. Uh, a, a healthcare professional had to get some DNA samples. They came in with a needle to vaccinate uh, bin Laden's kids. They got some DNA, and then we knew that that was bin Laden in that, that house he was in. It's so that yeah. spread that don't let anybody come in and vaccinate you because they're going to be able to identify you and or we're going to be they're trying to sterilize us and prevent us folks from uh, reproducing. So there was a lot of hysteria against vaccination and that reduced the efficacy of widespread immunization for polio virus. So it still exists in portions of war-torn Middle East. It still exists in parts of Africa as well, unfortunately. But pretty much in a first world nation like the United States, I, um, I, I think that I think there hasn't been a natural case of polio in the United States for 50 years, Correct. 60 it's, years, yeah, some, something it's, it's like been that. Quite and some the, time. the idea of the iron lung for a polio right. victim is gone. Exactly. Right. And people don't really realize when you look at a dime, there's a reason you know, why uh, FDR is on there. There was something called the March of, March dimes, of dimes to fight polio, which um, polio virus vaccination actually led to not complete eradication from the planet, but dramatic reduction of incidence in developed nations. The yes. interesting thing about polio is that there are two different kinds of polio vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one thing that we'll talk a little bit later about in the segment. But there's a, a vaccine that was made out of dead polio virus. There's mm -hmm. also a vaccine that's made out of an attenuated or a reduced um, a, a virus that's not as strong, and we, we'll, we'll probably get to get to that later. Sure. Okay. Sure. And so, coming up, are there other major nasty things for which 
vaccines have been very helpful, just sort of historically things that our audience might have heard about. Well, measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, um, those highly transmissible infectious Mm. diseases have been dramatically curtailed with virtually almost undetectable levels of returns of those infections, although now vaccine noncompliance, we're seeing an upswing in in returns. So what you're seeing, what I'm hearing from you, Dr. Riggs, is sort of an idea that some really nasty diseases have come up in the human population across the ages. Mm -hmm. And through this technology that we now call vaccination, uh, people aren't necessarily transmitting these things now with dental floss, like you mentioned. Um, there's more traditional needles or drops and things like that. But some pretty nasty things have been eradicated, severely eliminated. Yet almost from the beginning, when these things caught on, there were people who were very much opposed to the to the use of vaccines for a lot of reasons. And uh, nowadays we call that the the ax- the anti-vaccination movement, the anti-vax movement of which has a very strong showing um, in first world nations. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about the development of that? Yes. One of the most interesting posters I show my students is this poster from the Anti-Vaccination Society. So Edward Jenner has to be mentioned in the history of vaccination. He made this really interesting and fundamental observation that milkmaids, in other words, women who milked cows, did not get uh, a really severe form of smallpox if they caught it at all. That's because they were exposed to cowpox, a similar kind of virus. So he started doing vaccine trials himself and showed the efficacy of vaccination and actually coined the term vaccination. VACA, the stem, V-A-C-C-A, is Latin for cow as an attribute to the cowpox origin and Jenner's insight to seeing this. From the get-go, Jenner showed scientifically that this would work in some really interesting experiments. He vaccinated his own kids. He vaccinated kids in an orphanage. They vaccinated prisoners. And the way you tested the efficacy of the vaccines is you would take blankets and you would take someone who was sick and someone who was vaccinated and you would bundle them together so that they had to be locked together for 24 hours. So they had guaranteed exposure to the infectious disease. A natural infection. Well, somewhat natural. <laughs> so from the get-go, there was an anti-vaccine society that arose to fight this. It's against God. It's against yeah. nature. It's not a natural process. So if you look at these early posters, it shows people with cow heads blossoming out of their neck, right. people their tr- arms. People turning into cows and turning into other animals. All because of the pock of the cow was Something that turning them into some beast. Fascinating. Right. We'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on one. 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077thebronc.com, live from the Kilnarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. I'm here in the studio with Dr. Jim Riggs, immunology professor at Ryder University, and Diamond McNellis, our producer. We're talking about vaccines and the anti-vaccination movement. We left off in the last segment, and Dr. Riggs was telling us, even from the get-go, even though vaccines seemed to be working, there were people who were scared of these things. Early vaccines actually took biological materials from animals and applied them to people. And there were cartoons about people developing, you know, pigtails and cow's ears and, you know, looking very, very funny. But in reality, Dr. Riggs, how do vaccines actually work? 
Vaccine, what can you tell us? Very, okay. So vaccines essentially are controlled primary exposure to some foreign material. They will not make you sick. The intent is to train your immune system and say, look, here's something that you need to pay attention to. So we expose your immune system in a controlled fashion to some form of the infectious material. It could be an inactivated virus or an inactivated bacterium. It might be a toxic molecule that we've inactivated, like the diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus vaccines are all inactivated right. toxins. Would you, would called other things that there are, there are very effective vaccines for? So yeah. it's false when people say that I got the flu from getting the flu vaccine. That's absolutely impossible because the flu vaccine is a dead virus. Now, the person injecting you might <laughs> miss the injection site and do some damage, and that might lead to some muscular pain and symptomology that makes you think you have the flu, but it's virtually impossible. The flu virus is replication incompetent. It can't divide in you. So if you have these this dead or attenuated virus or nowadays particle or a, a piece of the coating mm -hmm. of a virus, that's one of the things we're going to get to in a little bit. And that's all of a sudden in your body. What does your, um, if you are otherwise healthy, what does your immune system do with this? It's the three R's. The three R's of the immune system is to recognize something is foreign, respond, and then remember. So immunological memory is the hallmark of vaccination. I control my, give you a primary exposure that gets the immune system energized. It remembers that primary exposure. The next time in the real world scenario where you're exposed to that microorganism, the immune response is faster, more durable, and longer, and it should afford protection for you. So let me, let me just address that for one second. So when people who are immunologists or understand the immune system use the word memory, are they using the word memory the same way as some somebody who's interested in like a, a neurobiologist who's studying learning and memory might use it Pro i would say right. no i would probably say no but i don't think we fully understand memory in the immune system so maybe I'll, memory in, in the nervous system so maybe i'll come back and interview someday you someday and we'll, we'll flip <laughs> oh, the, i'd be happy to address the, that if somebody coin. with a neuroscience background was going to look at it um one of the things that it, people would say is one of the ways you remember things is to be exposed to it over and over again mm -hmm. and then you forget sometimes but if you to something enough after a while you develop memory whether it's short-term memory or long-term memory and um, I was trying to draw it out of you to right. think about it the immune systems when people use the word memory it's a little bit different because you're saying a single exposure to something that the body the immune system and the body hasn't seen mm -hmm. before can create a long-term enhanced response if that same thing ever shows up again. so let's clarify that statement you said a single exposure it depends on the type of vaccine okay. you wanted to talk a little bit about types of vaccines mm -hmm. so something that's dead or inactivated, it could be a single exposure. Quite often you need a booster shot to really build more durable immunity. When we use portions of viruses or bacteria, you need multiple vaccinations. You don't build as well the immunological memory. Now you mentioned attenuation earlier there. Attenuation basically means you take a disease-causing organism and you calm it down. If you passage it in a dish, outside of a human host, it will no longer express genes that are associated with disease pathogenesis process. These are some of the best vaccines because you inject them into the individual, they can replicate, they stimulate better immune responses in the individual. So attenuated vaccines are actually some of the better ones that we have, but they don't cause disease. They don't cause disease, which is an important thing to know. And when we talk about preventing of disease, in terms of vaccines work, are we talking about something that prevents 10% of diseases, 20% of diseases, 50%, in order for something to be a vaccine 
vaccine that's actually used, what does the science have to show for something to be approved? You need the herd. You need to immunize the herd and build a ring of protection around those that are most at risk. The higher the vaccine compliance rate, the higher the probability that you'll prevent transmission to those at risk. Even people that are vaccinated might get disease. Not everybody genetically can respond to every infectious organism. So the ring immunization, the herd immunization mm-hmm. protects the, the entire Everybody in, in terms of community health. People with immune suppression, elderly people, people getting mm-hmm. certain pharmacologic treatments can be immune suppressed. The more we immunize the general population, that blocks the pathogen. Yeah, and that's that's definitely something we want to go to. We want to talk about the risks of not being immunized, and we will get there. For the moment, let's go back to a little bit of the biology of, of the immunization. When your immune system remembers something and you're going to potentially be exposed to it again, what's happening? In your body, well, essentially, what's you're, you're not growing a cow's tail, no or cow's a pig's tail, ears, no heads, or no. something like that that the the early anti-vax people talked about. Upon the initial exposure to the disease-causing organism, parts of that organism stimulated different cells in the immune system to respond directly to that. Now, without going into a whole lot of detail, there's two different arms of the immune system that are really kind of key, and it depends on the form of the vaccine to uh, elicit those different forms of the, of the immune response. But essentially, what you're doing is you're expanding an army of defenders, and these these defenders are well-trained now, and they're more efficient. To look for very specific And they're very specific. So if you're immunized against polio, is it going to do anything about pertussis toxin? No, it will not. It's of only it's very, very it's, it's exquisite in specificity. That's a hallmark of the immune system is the, the specificity okay. of the immune response. Right. So it's an army of trained soldiers. Assassins. Let, let's call them, what do they call those, the, the, secret, the secret soldiers who have, have targeted. They're good guys. The good guys who go out, very specific <laughs> bad guys, and try not to have any collateral Seal Team damage. 6. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Seal Team 6, looking for the, the, the very, very specific kinds of things. So, And this idea is, so over the years, more and more diseases, potentially bad ones that are lethal, have been developed, right? And some of them actually come from animals, like you mentioned, but not all vaccinations come from animals. Right. Um, cell cultures have been used, and now there's like genetic engineering. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, so historically, most of the, uh, virtually the great majority of all infectious diseases originated in animals. And that's a whole other of, show about story. how close people. No, 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 no! Don't, don't <laughs> go there. No, no, no! We're talking about domestication of animals <laughs> okay. and the development of culture and civilization. Right, and right. We don't have to wander around looking for food. But when you look at all these organisms, they right. essentially originated from domestication of animals, mm-hmm. and they jumped into us. Correct. And if, so, you, and if you look at art and pictures from you know several hundred years ago, a lot yeah. of them had people living in close proximity with animals. Correct. There wasn't a, like a farm; you were basically with your animals right. there. That's certainly historically. And the other thing that reduced disease transmission is people were wide flung and scattered. They were all Mm -hmm. over the place, Mm -hmm. right? Now you get people on subways and in planes, trains, Mm and close packed areas. You have people playing around with phones that they share with each other and they can pick up germs or transmit disease between these devices that they share. But I forget your original question. What was your, your, you were talking about (laughs) different. I was trying to get at the idea. So we talked historically that diseases um, and the immunization against certain diseases Mm -hmm. came from people interacting with animals, seeing things in animals and giving those things to people. Nowadays, some of the vaccines work and they're not developed in animals. They're developed in cell culture or by uh, genetically engineered bacteria. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how that works. Yeah, I mean, in the early days, you grew up the organism and you you inactivate it and you inject it into people. But some some of these organisms are really dangerous. Hepatitis B virus is a prime example. This is a virus that's very, very dangerous, leads to many deaths globally still to this day. 
And uh, what was done with this virus is we focused on some proteins that you find in the outer portion of the virus. And we, we basically cloned those genes and made proteins that we could then immunize people with. You need three shots with that particular mm-hmm. vaccine to have durable protective immunity. But that's been that's another Nobel Prize. The, the hepatitis B virus vaccine is phenomenally successful. Yeah, and we've all seen advertisements even on TV yeah. about about recent developments. A game changer. A it's game a game changer. changer. And there's a lot of ways to look, look at that. And human papillomavirus, HPV, is mm-hmm. another example of a genetically engineered, it's called a subunit vaccine. We don't inject you with HPV. We inject you with the protein that's found in the outer portion right. of the virus. And that's the Gardasil. That's Gardasil that they're, they're and, and, and Cervarix. Yep. And there was a huge outcry against using this because it was going to make teenage young women and sexually promiscuous. The social outcry on this was really hilarious when you watch that. And as you as vaccine compliance increased, you see tremendous efficacy of this. It, pre- it virtually virtually prevents cervical cancer. Yes, yeah. this particular vaccination. So here's a vaccine that prevents a sexually transmitted disease, one of the rare ones for STDs, and it also prevents uh, cervical cancer. And it works. It works which, very which is well. Pr- pretty well. I fell out of my chair when I saw the publication for the the efficacy trials of that vaccine. It was almost like ninety some percent. Yeah, the data were pretty fact, amazing. It was ridiculous. It? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. We will continue this conversation. We'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health Four One One on one zero seven seven The Bronx and one zero seven seven thebronxcom from healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077thebronc.com, live from the Kalnarni's Public Health Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. I'm here with Dr. Jim Riggs and Diamond McNellis, our producer in the studios, and we're talking about vaccines and the anti-vaccination movement. And we left off, and Dr. Riggs was giving us examples of some of, I mean, it's, it's a, I'm looking at a list here, and there's like 20 or 30 different things there are vaccines for, and he was talking about uh, many of them. And so the question that, that's sort of in my mind, Dr. Riggs, I'm hoping you can help address in this segment, is why can't we vaccinate against all these nasty things that are out there affecting people? Trust me, we're working on it. There are over, at last count, I think there's over 30 vaccine-preventable illnesses. Um, and we've, with vaccination, potable water, public health practices, we've doubled human lifespan in the last 160 years. When I say we, that's collectively that science and good public health practice. Um, but no, there's plenty of work to be done. One of the more embarrassing things for me as an immunologist whose heyday in immunology where I got my training was in the mid to late oh, 80s. Oh, you're not that old, Dr. Mid, mid, to late, <laughs> mid to late 1980s was the emergence of HIV infection oh, and AIDS. Oh, yes. I do and we that. do not have a vaccine for that. That's a really nasty virus. It actually attacks a key player in the immune system. We have tried. We've struggled for decades and a considerable amount of money has gone into trying to develop a vaccine for that. It's a prime example. Um, herpes viruses, mm-hmm. the whole family there's like in general, of them there's a whole, they've yeah. co-evolved with us for thousands of years. They're very interesting critters. They have large DNA-based genomes. They bring along all kinds of interesting tools 
to infections that allow them to evade detection by the immune system. They do all kinds of tricky things. So when you have a pathogen that's co-evolved with us, it, it develops ways to evade the immune system, to fool the immune system and persist, and maybe not necessarily make you really terribly sick because it just wants to get from one host to another to another. Viruses just want to make copies of themselves. They're not. There's no malicious intent. There's no thought process involved there. It's just making more copies of them. So yeah, we have a full plate. TB is would be a great example of a bacterial infection. Tuberculosis. That we're, yeah, that we're working on, and, and and that again is really insidious globally. That's one of the most prominent infectious diseases that you'll find with high rate of transmission. So what made what has made it so difficult to treat some of these things? The most, the majority of them play games with the immune system it's a cat and mouse game and so when you play say play games what do you mean it's kind of like whack-a-mole you're trying to you're going after where the mole was where the hammer starts to go down and then it pops up in another spot so they've they have genes Mm -hmm. that they bring to the infection that they turn on and help them to evade detection by the immune system and so that that form of um of being sort of stealth it can be the form of hiding maybe inside a cell Mm -hmm. and not activating components of that cell like a danger signals but it can also be turning on and off components of their genome to evade detection by the immune system sometimes they create a cloud they turn the immune system on so much that the immune system's confused just something called a cytokine storm that you'll see with certain types of infections so there's a there's an interesting bag of tricks that disease causing organisms bring to infections and it's it's an evolutionary dance that goes back and forth between the host and the pathogen but suffice it to say infectious diseases are generally not the leading causes of death developed nations because of antibiotics, vaccines, effective public health practice. And they used to be. A hundred years ago, they were at the top of the killing well, leading you, causes of death. If you look at the kinds of things, um, look at that list of 20 to 30 that you mentioned, um, some of these things, whether it's typhoid, cholera, the plague, rabies, smallpox, tuberculosis, diphtheria, influenza, polio, measles, mumps. Or, I mean, I'm looking at this list, and if you were to you know be studying this these are nasty things right and we don't this generation doesn't see kids with polio like we did mm-hmm. or measles and mumps, mumps rubella right? you don't even, see right. kids with those infectious diseases like we used to when we were young so we understood vaccines were important and we were vaccine compliant and uh, there's a lot less of that going on, as indicated by these recent outbreaks that you're seeing. Absolutely. And so and the science behind these things is hardcore science. Right. It's not, you know, some esoteric, some guy in his garage, you know, some, you know, crazy scientist who's the, you know, the what we used to say the arch enemy of superheroes trying to take over the world. The people who are doing this really want to help people. Right. And, and the science is... Trust, trust me, if vaccines caused autism and science, there was a scientist that discovered that, he would not hide that information. He would be hailed as a savior. We would actually figure out exactly right. what was going it's, on. It's sort of like crazy, like the idea that we can cure cancer, but you know somebody's got that secret I somewhere. I get that all the time yeah, in class, all the time in class. So I have a letter that was sent to President Donald J. Trump that was co-signed by over 200 professional medical societies. And this includes pediatricians, nurses, all kinds of the healthcare pro- pro- professionals. More than 200 of them co-signed this letter saying vaccines are safe and effective. Think of the collective focus of those hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals on the successful health of their of their patients. Let alone the collective intelligence of those individuals that co-signed the letter to the president, who declared at one point 
I believe it was him, it might have been Michelle Bachman, that vaccines cause retardation. This, yeah, this, it's, it's, it's heinous that you have this happening, this non-scientific statements from non-scientific people. Jenny McCarthy. Great example. Jenny McCarthy. Here's an individual whose vaccine leads an anti-vaccine campaign because she believes the vaccines cause autism. And it's unfortunate. She does have a child with autism. And to her, that's what triggered the disease. Here's an individual who has injected herself with botulinum toxin to give her larger lips and done other things to her body with needles that are far more dangerous than any kind of vaccine you ever could have imagined, right? And this is a non-scientist who gets all this public health attention. Right. Unfortunately, we live in a society, and that's one of the reasons that we have this Health 411 radio show, is we live in a society where people who really don't understand science or the scientific process, have never really been exposed to it, have a voice. Dr. Riggs and I were right before the radio show talking about flat earth movement. You know, because there's like rappers and basketball players who claim that the earth is flat and then people start to believe that. I mean, you know, you can ignore all the evidence, the photographic evidence, the fact that people can orbit the planet and all this other stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's unbel- it's unfathomable yeah. the kinds of things that people come up with. But people do the same thing with vaccines. And, it, and it's, it's not new. Like we started the show talking about, there's an anti-vaccination movement that goes back into the 1700s Correct. when it first started working. Mm-hmm. And then we have celebrities who you know make these pronouncements and unfortunately what they say gets traction yeah i think there's so many little information bubbles now people can go and get information they want in their own little network or cluster we don't share collective wisdom as much as we used to if you have a belief about something you can find somebody on the internet you can share that idea with and they'll perpetuate that falsehood absolutely and in this case it's 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 fine if some kind of a conspiracy theory that's you know if you want to believe in a flat earth good more power to you but believing that you shouldn't get your children vaccinated is is a very different ball game yeah, and, and we're gonna we're gonna go there um with that in in, in our next segment but it, it, it's actually a problem and then one of the reasons that this show is needed because you know there's a there's an expression that says my mind's made up don't confuse me with the facts you know something sounds good and they'll say oh look at this you know my, my my child was fine until he was you know five years old he got the mmr vaccine and now six months later my child is starting to show autistic symptoms that you know that correlation doesn't prove that anything scientific that is, is going on yeah. and to address that completely because of the way that movement took place countries uh, around the world have done studies to address those concerns and some of them have had tens of thousands of people in them have any of those studies ever found a link to the mmr vaccine or any vaccine in autism zero did you say zero i said zero dr Carr. Right. and there have been multiple studies with right. tens of thousands of people They're what are called meta-analyses where they've gone back and looked at thousands and thousands of case studies with many many patients these are pediatricians are people that work with kids and they sign on to this letter that's saying vaccines are yeah. safe and effective the timing of onset of autism is concurrent with the vaccine schedule it's a correlation. It's not causation, right? And we do a lot of work in the, in the lab with animals to try and test this hypothesis. Many intelligent people want to understand what causes autism, and they're testing every immune theory you can imagine, and we're not finding it. Fascinating. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about the dangers of not being vaccinated. I'm Health 411. We'll be back after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077TheBronc.com.
A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Colnarney's Public Health Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm here in the studio with Dr. Jim Riggs and Diamond McNellis. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp, and we're talking about vaccines and the anti-vaccination movement. In our last segment of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about the dangers of not being vaccinated. But before you move, we move on to that target, there's, there's, there's one thing I want to ask you. In conversations um, during the break, we were saying, what was the thing that was in vaccines that some people were claiming, well, it might not be the vaccine itself that causes problem. Maybe it's some of the things that people are putting in vaccines that are causing people to get sick. So the, the, the idea was that there was this compound called thimerosal, which has a mercury composition. And mercury is a heavy metal, which can do damage in cells. It can, it can precipitate proteins and things like that. The concentration of thimerosal had been tested. It was not anything that was dangerous. And so why was the form, in these, in these the, form, the form of mercury that's in thimerosal is not a really dangerous bio, biologically active form of mercury. There's more dangerous mercury in a can of tuna fish that your mother's putting in your sandwich <laughs> than in the vaccine. And it's no longer in vaccines either because of this hysteria that arose. It's, because of that. it's a preservative. It's initially thought to be a so preservative. So it was something that people latched on to and then what did science do? Science yeah. looked at it yeah. and said it, there's nothing going and on. And it's a very important point that you were raising about why do we have such preservatives. It's okay. essentially, you know, not everybody can walk into a healthy a healthcare clinic and the doctor pulls the vial out of the refrigerator like we can in America in a developed country, you might need to take vaccines out into very high, dry desert areas, and you need to have a preservative in the vaccine in order for it to still be viable and functional. So that's why there were, there were preservatives put in such vaccines. To try to make sure the vaccines work when yeah, it got in there. Exactly. One of the things we want to talk about, one of the things that's happening across our country and other first world nations is because people are afraid of vaccines. People are no longer vaccinating themselves and their children. So is there any danger in this? Of course there is. Yeah. So studies were done many, many years ago. Oh, look, we've eradicated an infectious disease. There's a very famous statement by a healthcare practitioner that we've eradicated an infectious disease. Let's focus on other things. They stopped doing antibiotic drug development, actually. It's another whole story we could talk about sometime. But um, they, they stopped paying attention and they said, well, let's stop vaccinating. Let's let's remove vaccine. And this happened in developed Western nations. And the diseases came roaring back. When the former Soviet Socialist Republics fell apart, when they dissolved, mm -hmm. they lost their healthcare infrastructure. And you saw this research, dramatic resurgence of these, infection, these infections that were preventable via vaccination. And then in America, what we're seeing with the Disneyland incident, San Diego County, Marin County, where you have what are called snowflake babies, families that are don't want to really vaccinate their children, right? Because they fear all and these associated uh, hysteria with vaccination. We've seen a resurgence of these in infectious diseases, and we've actually lost some people as a consequence of not. So nasty diseases that are completely They're always here. They're always here. These but organisms people are, are not around. getting these things because they might have been exposed, but they're not getting sick because they've been vaccinated. That is correct, right. Yep. And what's interesting, as I tried to allude to earlier, there are individuals that do get vaccinated that don't develop protective durable immunity. There's a low frequency of that happening. Those people are at risk or susceptible when they're sitting next to a kid who was not vaccinated but does get sick. Kids with immune compromise with mm -hmm. you know medicines that they're taking or what have you or bone marrow transplant recipients or what have you. Those people 
people are susceptible to infection. And we need to have optimal numbers of people immunized so you don't have disease transmission. You break the cycle of transmission from one individual to another if you develop immunity for the herd. This is a very well-established public health epidemiology fact. And we're seeing a resurgence of preventable infectious diseases unlike we've seen in recent years. You're seeing cases you haven't seen for infectious diseases. We haven't seen them since 1955. Right, and, and, the, and the danger's not just to the people getting these things. You have physicians who in their entire career have not seen, like nowadays, mm -hmm. if you were to develop a naturally occurring case of polio because you were not immunized, a physician might not recognize that right away because it's just not on their radar because they haven't been trained in it, they haven't seen it, and you might not get the help that you need. Good point. That's an, yeah. that's an absolutely thing. And isn't it just so frustrating, especially for you two, and especially Dr. Riggs, because this is someone who has dedicated his entire life to studying the, the immune system, and he knows the truth, and people out there just are oblivious to it and don't want to know the truth. And these people, like I said, have dedicated their entire lives to it. It is that's very true. Really good point, time, and it, it's, it is a source of frustration. It actually led me to go to Washington. I marched in, in D.C. for the March for Science, and I made a poster. My poster said, "Unfortunately, there is no vaccine for ignorance," and that's what we're dealing with. <laughs> we're dealing with ignorance, right? And, and, and in a sense, we said, you know, my mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> I mean, I mean, a more direct way of saying that, right. that's ignorance. It's like, I don't exactly. care what the data say. I don't care how efficacious these particular types of medicine are. It's people jump on these emotions. They're making decisions emotionally. Yeah. And it has implications for their kids. Yeah. It has implications for the society in which they live. It's kind of cherry picking what I want to believe in terms of you know what science has to offer, right? So you have this technology in your hand, this phone that allows you to provide all this connectivity, and you believe in that, but you don't believe in some foundational science that's allowing us to persist and survive in the face of infectious mm -hmm. disease. And it's. Uh, really unfortunate we're seeing this happening mm -hmm. more and more and that's yeah so i'm really much i want to be an advocate for speaking out about vaccination yeah and, and it can be a very powerful thing especially among people and their families who who maybe have been um, infected with something who have gotten sick there's an expression that says there are no atheists in the trenches <laughs> if you've been if you've seen somebody yeah. in an iron lung yeah. the idea of refusing a polio vaccine is like horrific they're going to be some of your fiercest advocates a absolutely. absolutely if you true. have a family that unfortunately somebody in it died or was affected by cervical cancer yeah. not getting a cervical cancer vaccine you're like of course I'm going to do that right. but one so in, in a sense the people who develop vaccines are victims of their own success mm -hmm. you know the, the, that's the, true the Medicines yes. have been so good that a lot of these things are off people's you radar. You don't see it. That's an excellent point. Yeah, yes. and and there's there's a, when I talk uh -huh. about these things, it's it's the old joke that if you're sending a kid to summer camp and you don't want to put like their name in the clothes, you tell the kid you're the only one who doesn't have the name in the clothes, and all those clothes are all those clothes are yours, right? And that's sort of like the risk that you're taking. You don't. <laughs> I guess that's why I was wearing a dress when I was a kid in yeah. camp. <laughs> there you go. Well, you're. <laughs> But it's it's the idea that you're you are still protected if everybody around you has been immunized. The problem is if there are a bunch of people yeah. who aren't immunized, 
you're you're not you're no longer protected. Right. I don't need that because my neighbor's going to take take care of it. That's right. My neighbor's going to yeah. do it for me. Right. And, and so I don't. And have your neighbor's to do it. saying the same thing, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and that, that's hence the joke with the, the camp the camp closed. And if you look at the list of things that are now possibly possible to protect people from, it's a it's there are like I said before nasty things on this list. Yeah. Why would you refuse it? You know, I mean, there are people who refuse it for religious reasons, and you can you can almost respect that if you if you really believe. Well, you in could. I can't. Yeah, <laughs> there are people who do that, but to 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 refuse to do a vaccination because you say the science isn't good or the data aren't good or there's something wrong with the vaccines that's in there, what do you say to those people? Yeah, not much. I mean, really, it's if you have a you've built up that kind of buffer against reality. Um, I think it comes down to Darwin and natural selection. <laughs> well, if they say it, it's proof of their ignorance that yeah. they just they don't know what they're talking about. It's very true, especially in susceptible populations. And so some of these vaccines are designed to give to children. And so none of us like to see children get sick and die. But there's also vaccines that are designed for the elderly population. Yes. So if we have any listeners of my generation or older, <laughs> what would you recommend for them, Dr. Ritz? Absolutely get the shingles vaccine. It's amazing, amazingly efficacious. I've had friends with shingles that drove me quickly to get shingles vaccination. Not that I wouldn't have been compliant to begin with as an immunologist, but it's a dreadful disease. This is, Again, this is so actually if you've seen somebody who actually has shingles. It's a, it's you, terrible. Say, it's get, a, if that can be that can be prevented, I'm doing it. Horrendous disease. Okay. Yeah. So and flu. Influenza is absolutely essential for elderly folks. And then uh, pneumovax pneumonia mm-hmm. vaccination. Those are those are key. So what would you say folks. to somebody who said, "Well, I got the flu vaccine, but I still got the flu." What what like what does that? Well, mean? that can happen. Yes, actually, can. there there are cases where we miss pick we don't pick the appropriate strains so the and flu is not one thing it's it's the, well there the flu vaccine usually is a trio of different viruses and we're trying to figure out what's emerging in southeast asia in the spring and what's going to come to us around the fall this other end of the globe and so when we don't communicate well with china we don't have field epidemiology over there to check the emerging strains and develop a cocktail it takes us a long time to build a, a sufficient amount of flu vaccine for the flu season so so, so we, we need to speed that up. And we sometimes we pick the wrong cocktail of viruses and we don't get 80% so efficacy. It, but so I'm, I want to get to the idea. It's not a failure of science then. Correct. It's a failure of predicting what the right strain is going to be for any given year. And you still should be vaccinated with that, the, that cocktail of viruses because you're building durable immunity over a lifetime. The flu we could talk about for an hour. It's a really cool critter, but we don't have time to do that yeah. right now. We'll, we'll, we will do that some other time. Thank you, Dr. Riggs. Thank you, Diamond. This has been a great show. This is 107.7 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com live for the Konani Public House Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Karp. Thank you for listening to Health 411, where we try to give you truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. Thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Roddy University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under Academics and Academic Programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.